we are still learning how to walk in his ways, aren't we? Yeah. Well, I hope you have your Bibles with you tonight. We'll be in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. For those of you who are uh, perhaps visiting or joining us for one of the first times tonight, we've been working our way through uh, several series or several sermons on the topic of marriage from Colossians chapter 3, and we'll pick up on that here in just a minute. But let me open us in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you that you lead us and that you are gentle and patient with us. You're so kind. And Father, we do pray tonight that you would accomplish all that you intend as we've already asked. And Lord, that your church would be strengthened, that your bride would be beautified, and that Father, people would look on us more and see the image of Christ of whom we are being conformed to. So we ask this in your name. Amen. Well, last summer, during what was, I assume, a slow news week, a number of media outlets ran a very politicized story on the details of the renovations that were taking place at the White House, uh, particularly in the Oval Office. Everyone was trying to make, the media was trying to make the event particularly newsworthy because they quoted our president who had uh, allegedly said that the White House was a dump. He was speaking to the, the fact that it needed some renovations, which it in fact did. Apparently, the heating and the air conditioning systems at the White House were almost 30 years old. Isn't <laughs> that great, right? They must have called the government to get some help, right? And my favorite part is that CNN it reported a mysterious odor that came from the West Wing in an area where the roof was leaking. This is on the internet, so we know it's reliable, right? But uh, separate from the longer-term renovations, the, the White House was also redecorated. Of course, you may know that uh, every time we elect a new president, the one of the earlier matters on the agenda is to choose curtain colors and carpet colors and which, you know, how many flags are going to be in the Oval Office. Our president has six, right? Or uh, which, which presidential portraits are going to be hung and where, right? And it, and it won't surprise you to know that, you know, to think this is, this is a big deal. President Obama spent one and a half million dollars on his redecorating, and uh, President Trump spent 1.75 million dollars redecorating Obama's White House, right? And, and on it goes. And so, given given the political setting, I suppose <laughs> suppose we can understand a president's desire to start over, right? To to be distinct and to be different from his predecessor, right? Redecorating is a way of saying, hey, there's a new commander-in-chief in town. I'm not like the old guy. In fact, he can't even keep his wallpaper here because I'm in charge, right? That's, that's kind of the attitude. One of uh, President Trump's officials actually spoke on this. She uh, was interviewed about the decorations, and she gave a kind of funny interview, I thought. She said, uh, President Trump wanted to bring back the luster and the glory of the White House. The Obama wallpaper was very damaged. There were a lot of stains on it. <laughs> now, us normal people <laughs> may balk at the price of spending, you know, one and a half million dollars on, on redecorating. And, but I think we can understand and, and kind of get the idea. Because this is, in fact 
a lot like what happens when the Lord Jesus moves into our lives as the Lord. He changes and reorients everything. Tim Keller once called this type of life change a life quake. You see, if you're going to be in a relationship, like a close relationship with God, you cannot relate to him at all and still retain certain parts of your life that are non-negotiable. Certain things that you say, no God, you can't change that color. You can't move anything there. There can't be anything, any idea, any behavior, any attitude, any relationship that is off limits to his renovations. Now, the Lord may change it or he may not change it, but at the very beginning and all throughout our relationship with the Lord, we have to say, in everything, Jesus must be supreme. And that's what we've seen in Colossians, is it not? Well, tonight we continue our study through chapter 3, where Paul sort of abruptly turns and begins to speak of how wives and how husbands and how children and how parents and how employees should, should live. And at first glance, here in verse 18, it, it seems kind of abrupt, like Paul's just coming out of, out of left field or something. I mean, why is he suddenly talking about this? Well, when we remember the big picture of Colossians, we understand. That big picture could be summarized down in verse 17. So, so look down and you'll see where Paul instructs us to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, every part of your life is done in view of the fact that Jesus is Lord. We are not our own, but bought with a price. And then Paul transitions after verse 17 into talking about all these relationships. Okay, well, let's put this together. Like, what's the implication here? What do you think the lesson is? I think the lesson is simple. When Jesus moves into our life as Lord, he reorders everything. There's not one single thing he doesn't touch. Not one chandelier, not one strip of crown molding that goes untouched. He wants to be Lord over all And that includes every single human relationship. These verses are not popular, but they are about what it means to live out your relationships under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We've looked at how wives submit to Christ. They submit to the Lordship of Christ in their marriages by submitting to their husbands. If you missed that, and if you're wondering why I'm talking like this, you might want to go back and listen to that to understand, because we're building on that some. And we've also looked some at how Christian husbands are to let the Lord rule over their lives and their marriages by loving their wives. Last time we focused on the first half of verse 19, this positive command, husbands, love your wives. But tonight, I want to focus on the second half of 19, this negative expression of that command. So look down at verse 19, where we read, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Do not be harsh with them. So we see this direct command not to be harsh. Now, some of you may have a different translation, and perhaps your translation says something like this. It says, uh, do not be bitter towards them. 
And that's the idea behind this English word harsh, right? It's, it's an idea of, of bitterness. You could perhaps translate it, stop being bitter towards them. Don't be bitter towards your wives or don't have the habit of being bitter or harsh with them. Now, I think that if we're going to think about this passage well, then we need to ask and answer a couple of questions. First, I think, why would Paul single out harshness here? There's a lot of fruit of the Spirit that he didn't mention. Why harshness? A second question is, what does this gentleness or this non-harshness, what does that look like in marriage? And for those of you who are not husbands here, which I recognize as many, that you will hear, if you listen carefully, many applications for all different walks of your life, especially as you are in positions of authority. But let's look at these questions one at a time. Why is it, why do we think that Paul would single out harshness? I mean, think about it. Paul had just commanded husbands, love your wives. And I think it would be pretty clear that harshness and love are contradictory attitudes, right? You can't be a harsh and loving man, right? That that doesn't really, that doesn't fit. So why would he single out this one other command? Like, why not say, and don't be impatient, or don't love your wives and don't be unkind or boastful, unless he's trying to place a particular emphasis on one idea, One matter of importance. Of all the things that Paul could have said about love, I mean, think about it. He didn't even include in Colossians the famous, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Right? He didn't even include that in Colossians. Instead, he said, do not be harsh. Paul is concerned about the problem of harsh husbands. He singles out this one particular expression and encourages them to be good husbands by not being harsh. So we could say it like this. A loving husband is not harsh with his wife, right? Or perhaps we could say it like this. A husband that is submitting to the lordship of Christ cannot be harsh with his wife. But we need to go back into the text and its context to understand why Paul would choose this particular issue. Why would he talk about gentleness? Well, I think we get a couple of clues. One clue is that if, uh, if you were to look at other books that were written during this time, and if you were to find this same word for bitterness or harshness, you would often find it in a political context. That can't be that surprising, right? After we just went through another election. But the word was often used to refer to a ruler, A particular type of ruler who is domineering and harsh. Right now, that's not hard for us to imagine. We've heard stories all throughout history. We've seen examples in grand ways and in small ways about how humans tend to abuse power. Power frequently and grossly is abused. But let's remember the context here of verse 18. Paul has just commanded wives to submit to their husbands. He's just told them to subject themselves to their husbands as their authority, to honor his position of leadership. Do you see what he's doing? Paul is making sure that when the husbands hear verse 18, they don't forget their part of the deal. 
sacrificial love. We talked about that last week, last time. Remember, friends, it is so easy for sinners. It is so easy for us when we're given any position of power and influence. It doesn't matter if you are the head of the smallest committee of the smallest church. There's temptation to abuse power. Probably not the best example, but, right? It's a story as old as time. And Paul doesn't even wait one single verse after verse 18 to start heading this off. He's saying, yes, husbands lead. Yes, wives submit to your husband, but make sure, husbands, that you get your head around what type of leadership God intends for you to provide. Paul is giving husbands the flavor He's giving husbands our flavor of leadership. There's all different kinds of leaders, right? Well, Paul's saying, this is how we are to be because this is how Jesus is. He's giving us the key distinctive to Christian marriages of how we are to carry out our leading. It is with gentleness, not producing bitterness. Of course, the word bitter could also be used for food or liquid or drink or something, right? That's frequent in the Bible. It can refer to a beverage going sour. John MacArthur says, Paul is telling husbands not to call their wives honey and then act like vinegar. (laughs) Have you ever done that? Have you ever had those sort of fights? You're in church, don't lie. Right? You ever had those fights where you say, uh, you know... That's not what I mean, dear, right? Or, uh, or I know, honey, right? You ever, you ever had that? Man, the main lesson for us tonight is that gentleness, gentleness is the distinctive component of shepherd leading, the shepherd leader. That's going to be the idea we see. And as I said, we're going to talk about some practicalities in a few minutes, but I want, to, I want to flesh out this idea of gentle leadership for a few minutes. I want to focus on this context, uh, this particularly in the context of, of, of a ministry that the Bible calls shepherding, and discuss what the Bible teaches on even how pastors are to lead, because there, there are many parallels there. Remember, who is it, husbands, that we are to be imitating here? We saw this last time, Ephesians chapter 5. We are to be imitating Christ. Christ is the good shepherd. And what did that shepherd do for his sheep? He laid his life down. So men, as we exercise oversight, as we lead... As we govern, we are to be leaders that are loving, not tyrannical, not domineering, definitely not bullies. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter is speaking to, uh, to pastors. He's speaking to pastors over the exact same issue. And listen carefully, you don't have to turn there, but listen carefully to what he says of how a shepherd should act. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. That's 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 2. And there, if you, could, if you were able to hear that, not only does Peter describe what godly 
oversight or godly leadership looks like for pastors, right? He said, as God would have you, act in a certain way. But this also applies to the home. Because we're learning how God intends for shepherds to shepherd. He says pastors are not to abuse the authority they have, not to abuse their authority over their flocks by, the text says, lording over them. And neither are husbands to abuse their authority in the home, over their wives and over their children. In fact, think about it. When the Bible teaches about the qualifications of a pastor, not only does it single out things like he must not be violent, he must be gentle, but it focuses on how a pastor manages his home. Why do you think that is? Listen as I read from 1 Timothy chapter 3. The scriptures say, A pastor, an elder, must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Listen carefully. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Did you hear that? Shepherding at home is correlated with shepherding of a pastor in the church. The home is the pastor's testing ground to see if he is fit to be a pastor. In other words, if you're a husband, you pastor at home. You shepherd at home. It assumes the home is where all husbands will shepherd. The home is where all husbands pastor. Churches are to look into the home lives of men and look for men who are gentle, shepherd-like in their leadership, and there they are to find their pastors. And in Colossians chapter 3, we're going to see the same pattern that husbands and pastors as well as fathers, we'll see in a couple verses, are to take up their leadership roles as gentle shepherds. The word shepherd itself includes gentleness, right? That's because Jesus did that. I want you to flip over to Matthew chapter 20 with me. Matthew chapter 20. While you're turning there, perhaps you'll remember the story of when the mother of James and John came to Jesus and asked for a special seat in Jesus' kingdom, in his coming kingdom, a position of honor and authority. And I want to pay attention to Jesus' rebuke because Jesus took an important opportunity to teach about leadership and about service and about greatness. Look at verse 25 of Matthew 20. Jesus said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Listen, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you hear it? Whether you're a husband or whether you submit to this type of Christ, did you hear it? Great leaders do not domineer over others. Good rulers do not lord over others. No, they serve. In fact, they serve at great personal cost, even to lay down their lives for others. 
That's what Jesus has done for you. No matter what your position in the family or in the home or in society is, friends, that is what Jesus has done for you. Though we did not respect him, and though we did not submit to his law, he laid his life down for us. He came not to be served, but to serve. Husbands, let that be our motto in the home. That we do not go home to be served, but to serve and to lay our lives down. Like Jesus. Jesus came gently. He came riding on a donkey. He came and willingly laid his life down for who? His bride. He's the good shepherd. And he is to be our example in all of this. But I think the question remains for us, what does this gentleness look like practically? How do, we, how do we apply this? Is this the kind of leadership where the leader is just walked on? I mean, like, is this the kind of leadership where the leader is crucified? Is he a doormat? Is he so passive that he can't even read, uh, lead? I mean, remember, right? This same Jesus, he rode a donkey, yes, but he also turned over the tables in the temple, as we sang tonight. You see, shepherds to be effective must lead. And so men, as I'm encouraging you to be gentle in your leadership, I'm also encouraging you to be leading in your leadership. Shepherds must lead. They must rule. The husband is called to love his wife like Christ loved the church, but he's also called to be the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands have been given legitimate authority by God. And that authority is to be administered in accordance with God's design and for his purposes and for his glory. You are to use your authority and your influence in a way that pleases God. You are to act as if God would if he were in your position. That's what we were made to do. And this means that we have to speak, we have to confront And we have to lead. But the question we're thinking about tonight is, how can we do that with gentleness? I think there's a great danger. I see this often. I don't don't know if I see more domineering husbands or more passive husbands. Both are failing to lead like Christ. So let's ask the question, how can we be gentle shepherd leaders? And I like to be as practical as I can. And, and for those of you who are listening and you feel like this doesn't apply to you practically, as I've said before, perhaps you are raising boys. Perhaps you have friends who are in difficult marriages. Perhaps you're raising grandchildren. Perhaps there are men in this church you need to be praying for. You need a picture of what this looks like. And I pray also it will give you a better picture of what Christ, who is the good shepherd and who is the perfect servant leader, that it will give you greater appreciation and love for his glory and for his righteousness. But I do want to be as practical as I can. And so I want to give you, in light of many abuses of this, I want to provide you with some practical guidelines for how to lead. Practical guidelines for how to lead. Specifically, how are you to go about giving directives to your wife? Now, I know that just that might make your skin crawl, right? We don't talk like that. 
But that's a part of leadership, right? Communicating. And let's, if, we, if we talk about it frankly, we're going to have a way to do this with godliness rather than pretend it's not real and then abuse it, right? So we're, what we're asking is how do you make your leadership clear? How do you make your direction clear? How do you direct your wife to do something or to forbid her to do something without sinning and without being harsh? Is that possible? Now I'm going to go through this quickly and a lot of it I'm going to leave for you to think about. Hopefully it's explanatory enough and some of it is, uh, is, is hopefully some review for you. And, and some of these ideas were inspired for me by the old English Puritan by the name of William Googe. So I give credit, credit to him for part of this. But here are, I don't know how many directives I have, maybe eight or nine. Number one, husbands, your direction, this applies for leaders too, your direction must be lawful. In other words, it must be biblical, right? This is really straightforward. You must never command your wife to sin. And if you do, she absolutely should refuse you. You should never command your wife to sin. We've talked about this in the past, right? You have authority from God, but your authority is limited, It is borrowed. It is given to you to be an extension of God's authority in the home. It's not absolute. So don't demand sin. Secondly, your direction must be lawful in the eyes of your wife. In other words, don't have her do something that would violate her conscience. This comes into play quite frequently. In counseling, we sometimes call this the holding principle, right? If, if, you're, if two people are really seeking the Lord, this comes into play a lot with financial decisions, right? If two people are seeking the Lord, a husband has one, one direction, the wife has another direction, there are times where it is wise to simply hold and, and wait and see if the Lord would bring more unity. Particularly if, if a decision, especially if a, if a decision is morally troublesome to one party. You must not act until you are sure that you're not committing a sin. A third direction is that you, husband, should be able to explain the biblical basis of your direction. You should be able to explain, give a biblical reason for why you're leading in a certain way. Right? This, this, you see how this steers us away from being domineering, go get me a beer from the fridge, honey kind of husbands? Right? That's not what we're talking about here. So you could say something like this. Let's say you have a situation, hypothetically, where, um, <laughs> well, let's put it like this. You, you could say something like this to your wife. You could say, honey, I would love for you to get the pedicure that you would like to get. I, I appreciate that you take care of your body and that you make efforts to, to look attractive. I really appreciate that about you. But right now, we just don't have room for this in the budget this month. I, I believe it would be poor stewardship for us to put this on the credit card. You could cite Proverbs 22.7, which speaks about the danger of debt. And just say, you know what? This isn't something that we need. Maybe next month we'll have room for you to get a pedicure. Please don't do that. Do you see an example? This is a helpful measure for you and I to hold ourselves accountable. Where is the biblical basis? It's not always clear, but often it is. And this helps us direct our wives in a way that Jesus would. It helps us examine our motives, knowing that any authority and any power can be dangerous. But of course, guys, this also means if you, if you, if you uh, are in the situation I just described, that means you can't run off and get the pedicure. 
<laughs> or whatever your pedicure is, right? If you get a pedicure, well, never mind. That'd be a great chance to sacrifice and to serve, to serve your wife. A fourth principle is that your direction, husband, should be based on biblical principles. It should be biblically reasonable. So, for example, this is not, hey, honey, go stand on your head in the kitchen. Like, that is not what we're talking about. This is not like the joker, right? That's not what we're talking about. So, perhaps another example would be if you, uh, you great husband you are, right? If you're sitting on the couch, you've been there for two hours, and, it's, uh, and you realize, oh man, I forgot to take the trash down. Uh, tomorrow's trash day. So you say, hey, hey honey, right? Um, well, you could take the trash out. And since that's something you normally do, your wife rightly asks you why, right? Um, you cannot say, hey, it's not a sin. I'm your husband. The Bible says submit. Go do it. I don't, I don't think that that is God's intention at all. That's not biblically reasonable. However, it, I mean, that's selfish. However, it would be biblically reasonable to say something like this. Perhaps you would ask your wife to prepare a meal the next week for some guests that are coming. The Bible talks about uh, wives as, as being workers in the home, and, and the Bible speaks of having hospitality without grumbling. So this fits into, there's a biblical reasoning for this. And so a husband is in much better position to ask a, something like that. What I've found is often that when couples have problems with, with roles in their marriage, especially with, the, with a husband that is domineering, the problem is usually because the husband is insisting that his wife do things or not do things because he's insecure and because he's afraid. I've seen men that won't let their husbands or that won't, won't let their wives uh, go to a party without him or won't go out in public in certain places, right? There's a variety of ways. I, I know of a man who wouldn't let his wife get her hair done because he didn't want her to be attractive to other people. Often is out of insecurity. Focusing your leadership on biblical principles and actually being able to explain it helps guard against sinful motives. A fifth practical direction here is that men, our direction should be open to appeal. In other words, your wife should always have the opportunity to question you. This is huge. The Bible in James chapter 3 describes wisdom as being pure and gentle and open to reason. Right? Wisdom is open to reason. And if you haven't explained the biblical basis for your reason and it's hard for your wife, you should welcome your wife's questions and concerns and appeals. Remember, as we saw before, God gave her to you as a helpmate. And you need her help. If your, wife, if your wife knows that she can appeal your decisions without being shamed or yelled at or manipulated, you are going to be blessed because of it. There have been times when my wife has given me a better biblical argument than the argument that I suggested. <laughs> and we, I need that. We need that. So we could talk a whole lot about 
uh, we don't have time to that, but we could talk a lot about how mutual submission doesn't trump, it doesn't completely wipe away the call for a wife to submit to her husband, but it does paint a picture of how God intends for wives and husbands to depend on each other and to defer to each other and to seek each other's interests. Another practical way, number six, is that your direction should be according to your wife's, your wife's abilities and her weaknesses. According to her abilities and weaknesses. Remember, we are talking about gentle and loving leadership. And so love is concerned with the well-being of its object. A loving leader is aware of weaknesses. The scriptures even command husbands to treat their wives as the weaker vessel. It doesn't mean they're inferior, but it means that we are to treat them like fine china, as, as, as something that is precious and fragile, not rubber-made, not rubber-made containers or metal trash cans, but to be gentle and to be careful. It means we are to always we are to live with our wives in such a way that we are always striving to place them above us, to place them in a position of honor where other people see them and are interested and amazed. So we speak well of them when they're not around. We 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 put them in positions where we, we where they're not likely to fail, especially publicly. We don't treat them as common. We get to know our wives, and we work to, to help and to serve and avoid putting them in positions that disrespect or dishonor them. A seventh way, and let me just encourage you with this carefully. Men, we have to guard against pride when we are disobeyed or rejected. This is huge, and this is where most of us fall, and I would guess that for many of us, this is where anger shows up in the home for husbands. When we feel dishonored, it doesn't matter if we are dishonored, it just matters that we feel like we're dishonored. When we feel dishonored or feel disrespected, what's the natural tendency? What's the tendency of the flesh? Well, it's anger. It's not gentleness. Gentleness does not come from the flesh, right? It's how dare you treat me like that. And we're going to see this apply as fathers, as fathers and mothers to children as well. That we are to treat our children with the same kind of gentleness and not exasperate them with unrealistic expectations. Part of being a gentle shepherd, this is true for mothers and fathers and all types of shepherding. Part of being a gentle shepherd is that you must be willing to be wronged and not make it a matter of pride. That you have a thick skin So when your wife appeals to you, or challenges you, or refuses you, that's a great time for you to deal with some of that pride that comes up. It's a great time. It's a great time for sanctification. We tend to focus on how we've been hurt. We tend to be oversensitive and unwilling to be challenged. And even if our wives are sinning against us, as that happens, we can humbly have compassion on them. Why? Because we too struggle to come under the Lord's authority, don't we? We know what it's like to come under, we know what it's like, how hard it can be. And that's coming under a perfect Lord, not us. A final direction is, is I think that your directions and your prohibitions should be infrequent. 
I think your leadership should be daily and constant and service-oriented, but I think that our directives, I hope you are understanding what I mean by this, should be infrequent. You could think of your authority like a sword, right? It's always hanging on your belt when you need it. It's safely in its sheath, right? It's very dangerous. But if you use it too frequently, or if you use it for the wrong things, it can become dull and ineffective, Right? Don't be the guy who takes his sword out to cut a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. It'll get mucked up. Don't use it to cut the grass. Do you see? A wise shepherd, a wise pastor, a wise husband, a wise parent is only going to use authority when needed. The Bible says, especially for pastors and fathers, it's because we too are sheep. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, there's instruction given to pastors, and listen carefully. It says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers and care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Did you hear that? Pastors, and by implication husbands, it says pay careful attention to yourself and to the flock, and to your wives, and to your children. Pay close attention to yourselves. We're under shepherds. We are not, we are shepherds who are among the flock. We are among. And the same is true for husbands. Only flex, only flex your authority when needed for the good of other people. Guys, how are you doing in this? How are you doing? Are you a gentle shepherd leader? Are you not domineering over those in your care? Not exasperating them with unrealistic expectations? How are you doing? Perhaps you're too passive and don't provide any gentle leadership at all. You'd rather just avoid it, right? It's hard. Perhaps you're here tonight and you hear this word and there's some bitterness in your heart. That even the Lord would direct families like this. Perhaps you're in a marriage where you're married to a man who does nothing but abuse any leadership and power he could possibly have. We can take all that to the Lord. I don't know about you, but for me as a husband and as a pastor, this reminds me how much I need Jesus. He is the good shepherd. And he is the perfect husband. Ladies, he will be better than any husband you find and he will be better than any pastor you you find. Look to Jesus. As we just read this week in Hebrews, we have a high priest who is able to deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. Jesus knows what it's like to be human and he's making all things new. So turn to him, look to him and be saved and trust him in your circumstance. Let me close this in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word and for your provision and direction in our homes. I pray that you would strengthen our marriages. Lord, that you would use us, especially as husbands, to be men who are not seeking to be served, but those who serve and lay our lives down for others. I pray that the families at Trinity Baptist Church would grow and be strengthened and set this example for children and the world that is watching, and that many would be blessed because of godly humble leadership. Accomplish this by your grace, we pray. Amen.
Thank you, church. You're dismissed. Go in peace.